This podcast examines issues on violence driven by gender inequality, a profound and widespread global health problem that is likely to have personally touched the lives of our listeners. Listen with care and compassion, and please talk to someone should anything come up for you while listening to this episode. For more resources, email svri at svri.org. Violence against women is preventable, and it is preventable within programmatic timeframes. It doesn't require a lifetime to end violence against women. You're listening to the Sexual Violence Research Podcast from the SVRI. I'm Elizabeth Dartnell. And I am Angelica Pino. Our vision is to see a world free of violence against women and violence against children. And in this podcast, we learn how to make that vision a reality. In today's episode, we're finding out what the evidence on preventing and responding to violence against women is telling us. My name is Manuel Contreras Urbina. I'm gender-based violence specialist for the Latin American and Caribbean region at the World Bank. I've been working in gender for my entire career, specifically on gender-based violence. Manuel is on the lineup alongside Mary Ellsberg. I'm the director of the Global Women's Institute at George Washington, based in Washington, D.C., and we work on many issues having to do with promoting gender equality and women's empowerment, but our main focus is on violence against women and girls, and we carry out research, we do training and teaching, and we're also very involved in uh, policy and advocacy. We'll also hear from Rachel Jukes former consortium director of the What Works to End Violence Global Program. Rachel works for the South African Medical Research Council. I am the executive scientist at the SAMRC, and I built the research that the MRC does on gender-based violence, leading it over nearly three decades with my colleagues. And we have been conducting research on sort of a very wide range of different aspects of gender-based violence within South Africa, as well as conducting research globally, particularly elsewhere in Africa and in Asia and in the Pacific region. Over the course of this podcast, we have explored many of the amazing programs that have been taking place globally to prevent violence against women and violence against girls. The question is, how effective are these interventions And which ones work best? It's not always easy to keep track of what's working because a lot of the time the results of interventions aren't properly documented, especially in low- and middle-income countries. In my region, in Latin America and the Caribbean, most of the evidence is not published in English or in peer-reviewed journals in English and it's really not necessarily known but by many researchers or other key actors working on this. So people don't know about these interventions, these programs, these actions. So I think what can help is to create more uh, knowledge sharing platforms that exchange from the south, south and the south to the north. It's important that the donors focus on uh, supporting local researchers, local universities in the development of knowledge on this topic, empower these local research groups 
that have a lot of uh, expertise and have a lot of capacity, sometimes that they, what happens is that they don't have the opportunity or everything is in English. So it's key that somehow we develop these uh, ways that support institutions, local institutions, and not just the high-income ones. Despite this lack of evidence, a lot of great research has been carried out that is giving us valuable insight into what interventions we should be investing our time and money into. The What Works to Prevent Violence Against Women and Girls program, funded by UKAID, has worked in 13 countries across the world building the evidence base. As part of what works, we were evaluating different interventions in different settings. And at the end of the program, we did a review of the entire global literature, looking at studies that had sought to use interventions to reduce violence against women, particularly intimate partner violence, and to find out whether the interventions had had an effect. And we found that actually the global literature is quite large. There were 95 different interventions that had been researched. And we found that there were nine interventions of different types that had been evaluated in two or more really rigorous studies and had been shown to actually reduce gender-based violence in the population receiving the intervention when compared to a comparative population that didn't receive the intervention. One of them was a cash transfer intervention and providing cash seems to be able to change dynamics in such a way as to reduce violence. Another was a set of interventions that seek to combine gender transformative elements with elements that stimulate either income generation through income generating activities or livelihood strengthening, leading to some form of economic empowerment or otherwise through economic empowerment through giving microloans. We found interventions that had combined parenting interventions and IPV prevention interventions when targeted around the time of the birth of a child or in a fairly short period thereafter were also effective. We found that some interventions that had been evaluated that sought to change social norms across communities were able to achieve this and could bring about change and reduce violence on a very wide scale. And we found some school-based interventions to prevent violence had been effective. And we also found interventions to reduce peer violence, particularly play-based life skills interventions, but there are a range of others that had impact. We found that couples' interventions that seek to reduce alcohol and substance abuse can be impactful. And then the ninth intervention type that we saw being effective was interventions that sought to bring together sex workers through um, programming to enhance their resilience to violence from non-partners, bearing in mind that sex workers are extremely vulnerable to violence from clients, from the police and from other men within the community. And so these were examples of core interventions. So other interventions that have either been shown to work in one study 
that was well conducted or where there was conflicting information. But these are nine key ones. And it's really exciting because they give you a basis from which to go and program. And whilst we require really good innovation in the space of developing programs and helping us to expand our understanding of what works to prevent violence against women and girls, it's really good to have intervention types that can be adapted for multiple settings and have previously been shown to work. However, and there's always a however, we did also find that not every intervention of a type that seemed successful did work. And we saw that within What Works, where we were evaluating some of these interventions too. So we drilled down into our interventions to look in great detail at the design and the implementation of the interventions. And we developed a a, a hypothesis that the reason why these interventions were not working is that some of them had quite major problems with their design or their implementation. And from this, studying the ones that did work compared to those that didn't, we were able to conclude that there are six features that seem to be required always for interventions to be successful. And there were another four features that seemed to be required when the intervention design was of a particular type. And if they were not in place, the interventions generally didn't work. And I think that this is a really important place to be in because it means not only do we have a set of types of interventions that we can take, use, scale up, adapt for different settings. But we also know a lot about the features of good practice that need to be in place. Here's Manuel, who also has some interesting insights into the current state of evidence. What we know, thanks to several research and evaluation in the last 10, 15 years, is that we have already some principles. Some of these principles are tackling the roots of violence, the roots of this type of violence. And the roots are gender inequality on one side, and also, and on the other side, I would say the use of violence to resolve conflicts, especially in disciplining children and use violence as a cultural way to resolve situations. So tackling these two roots are extremely important to prevent violence. So in that, what works is to develop programs that help to the transformation of these gender norms working with the community, working with both women and men, with different actors, with key actors, uh, leaders of the community, chiefs, and trying also for the entire community to reflect about the power relationships that there are in the society among all the different genders and how that affects all of us. This transformation of gender norms, we know that take years. So it's important to invest in activities that are long-term and also the importance to see the links between violence against children and violence against women that also can help to prevent violence. There are many, many strategies of how to do that, including working with communication materials, trainings, specific strategies to engagement and voice, etc. So All that are important. There are many organizations working on that. And one of the main things that I think is key is the transformation of the educational sector, especially working with the schools, the Ministry of Education, to really 
include the topic of gender equality and comprehensive sexual education in the curriculum. I, I think aiming the transformation to uh, children and youth is key for a real change in the society. We've seen a lot of progress. We cannot compare the entire society on, on this, like how we were like 50 years ago. And there are some times where we, we get some backlashes from here and there, but I think is we are really uh, progressing. And now the question is how we can really accelerate this change. Working with both men and women, boys and girls, in terms of um, reflecting about power dynamics. I think that's that's really key. And also we know that we cannot confront the society in their values, in their culture. So we need to find the ways about how these principles can be adapted to each local context. One important component is about create equality in all the different fields and areas of, uh, of where society interacts. But the most challenging ones that I've seen that are hard to change are one related to what we understand the caring of the family and the, the basically the division of labor within the household. Reducing that gap is extremely important. And then the other one is related to sexuality. We still see different uh, way about how men and women can live their sexualities. And that creates an important division between men and women and that women still see as, as, as sexual objects. And for that reason, one of the elements that I think is key is comprehensive sexual education in the schools. In order to prevent violence against women and violence against girls, you have to be able to address drivers of violence, which was a fundamental part of the What Works program. You don't have to address absolutely everyone in every setting because they're not always applicable in every setting or in every relationship. But you do need to address the most important ones for your setting or for the population you're working with. What we did was to come up with a fairly simple framework for thinking about this. I mean, the first foundational driver is obviously gender inequity and the subordination of women to men and to patriarchal privilege globally. And it's incredibly important to understand the role of gender inequity in driving violence against women and girls. And we've seen that with the exception of giving cash, there are no other interventions that work at all that don't address the issue of building gender equality in different ways. It feeds into our second structural driver of poverty because we know that in contexts of poverty, there is much greater gender inequity and that gender inequity itself drives poverty. We know that poverty, violence against women and girls is very much more highly prevalent in settings where there is greater poverty for a range of different reasons one of which is that it impacts on some of our individual and relationship factors, including the very important one of how conflict is handled within relationships. And having poor conflict and communication skills is both an incredibly important driver of violence within relationships, but a risk factor that's extremely amenable to intervention. 
And that's one of the good messages that come from this. Poverty often is very strongly related to substance abuse, whether harmful alcohol drinking or drug taking, and relatedly, poor mental health. And we know that both um, men who are heavy drinkers are much more likely to be violent towards women. We know that um, poor mental health is both a caused by uh, experience of violence against women, as well as being a risk factor for either being experiencing violence or perpetrating. And then our third key driver here is experience of child abuse, because we know that experience of child abuse is one of the most important drivers of poor mental health. And that has impact across the life cycle for men in terms of perpetration of abuse and for women in terms of enhancing their risk of experiencing abuse. We often talk about the important role of taking a feminist approach and the importance of women's rights movements to tackling the issue of violence against women and violence against girls. And a study Mary was involved in in Nicaragua more than 20 years ago, Candies in Hell, really brings this message home. In the early 90s, the women's movement was really growing in Nicaragua and They had identified violence against women as an issue that had been ignored for many years and that was really central to women being able to take more control over their lives. But we didn't have much evidence. We had a lot of anecdotal information. Women in general didn't talk about domestic violence. It was something seen as very shameful. Nicaragua is a very Catholic country, and often women were told that they should endure violence in order to keep their families together. They shouldn't complain, submit to their husbands. And the women's movement was trying to pass a law against domestic violence, which would was one of the very first ones in Latin America. This is now about 1995. And when we started talking to lawmakers about the law, the proposed law, most of them um, from all of the parties just laughed in our faces and said that that would never get passed that if we really wanted to pass a law, we had to just we had to show hard numbers to show that domestic violence was even a problem and not something that just, you know, was made up by the feminist movement and something that just a very few women experienced. So at that time, I was just beginning my doctoral studies in epidemiology, and I decided to do my doctoral research on domestic violence and to do the first prevalent study of intimate partner violence in Nicaragua, and it was one of the early ones in in Latin America as well. So we did a population-based study in the city of Leon, which is the second largest city in Nicaragua. And what we found was really mind-blowing for us. We expected that there would be a fair amount of violence. We didn't know whether women were even going to be willing to talk to us about it, but we found that women were actually eager to talk about their experiences. They were so grateful that somebody was asking them for the first time in their lives what they were experiencing behind closed doors. And what we found as the results were that one out of every two women that we interviewed had experienced physical or sexual violence from a partner in their lifetimes. And one out of four had experienced violence in the last 12 months before the the study. And that was really a lot more than we were expecting. We compared 
these figures to the national police figures. And at that time, only 3,000 women reported domestic violence to the police in, during that year of 1995. And according to our figures, when we expanded it out to the, to the national population, it was more like a quarter of a million women had experienced it. So that just gave us a sense of how vastly unreported domestic violence was and how extremely common. So we took these figures to the national government, to the parliament, when they were included in the preface to the law, the new law on domestic violence. And the women's movement did a huge amount of advocacy around this. And as a result, we ended up getting a unanimous support for the new domestic violence law. And this is a case where just a few months before, people had said that this was you know, not viable at all politically. And 20 years later, Mary and her team went back to Nicaragua and did a follow-up study they found that the levels of domestic violence had reduced substantially by 70%. We had been wanting for a long time to go back to Nicaragua and return to the same place, use the same methods, and find out if there had been a change. Since this was a very early study, we really had a good time period to be able to look at any changes. And we knew that there ought to be an impact on the levels of violence because so much had happened during the last 20 years. Women and children's police stations had been developed and were functioning all over the country, even in small towns. There were women's crisis centers led by feminist organizations. There were national laws, not just the one that passed in 1996, but then what is called a second generation law, which is not just about family violence, but about violence against women and girls in general, and uh, looking at femicide and other forms of, of gendered violence. And with all of these different policies and activities and campaigns against violence, and even TV shows, there uh, uh, a group called Puntos de Encuentro had a very popular social soap opera that they called it, called Sixth Sense, and that had many storylines that dealt with child sexual abuse and with intimate partner violence, and then they would turn these into informational communication campaigns. So we thought if there's any place where we should be able to see a very large decrease or something measurable, it would be Nicaragua. And if we, in fact, if we didn't see a decrease, we would be, um, we'd be really disappointed. <laughs> And so we actually got funding from the Sexual Violence Research Initiative, for which we are very grateful, and mm -hmm. were able to do a mixed method study in 2016. So that's about 20, 21 years after the first study. We worked with the same group of researchers in Leon at the university, the medical school and the University of Leon, used the WHO questionnaire, which had been more or less the same instrument that we used originally, same training, everything. So we could really compare the results. And what we found surprised even us. So we found that lifetime violence, the difference, it was, it went from 55% to 27%. And when we did multivariate analysis, so sophisticated statistical analysis, where you're controlling for age groups, for other kinds of demographic factors, education, some of these issues that might be behind a decrease and might explain it as opposed to, you know, saying that violence actually did go down. There we found that 
lifetime violence had gone down by 63% and violence in the last 12 months had gone down by 70%. So that was really a very significant drop. We also did then a a lot of in-depth analysis of this. And in fact, we, we just a few weeks ago published one of the papers where we talk about sort of our hypothesis of how this happened. We felt just from looking at the data and seeing that this was a real decrease and not just because of greater education among women or, or less poverty, we looked at a lot of issues that we thought might have an impact. So one of them would be whether women were using the women's police stations. Another would be, did they know about the laws? Did they know that there was a place they could go? And especially what were their attitudes towards violence? Because we had found in our first studies that almost 30% of women, so one out of three women, felt that you know a man was actually justified in beating his wife under certain circumstances. And that might be, she talked back to him, she may have left the house without asking for permission, he might suspect that she was seeing another man. It could even be just neglecting the house and the housework and the children. So we looked at all those different factors and we found that there had been big changes in all of them, not just among the younger women who we would expect to have very different values than their mothers considering all that had happened in this period, but also older women also were much less likely. Now it was 8% of women across the age groups who said that there was any reason that a woman deserved to be beaten. So that's eight compared to, to 30, and that's a very large decrease. We found that women were twice as likely to look for help when they were experiencing violence. 70% of them had watched one of the social soap programs, and 90% of them knew about the newest law against violence against women and girls. So we had an idea that a lot had actually changed in terms of women's attitudes and their behavior and their experiences. And when we put this all into one of these very complicated, sophisticated statistical models called path analysis, we found that basically the effects, the impact of feminist organizing, in other words, advocacy for the laws, advocacy for greater services, none of these government programs would have happened if there hadn't been very strong demands made by the women's movement. And the changes in attitudes all had an impact on women's likelihood of experiencing violence and their likelihood of seeking help. So what are the implications of these findings for other countries wanting to reduce violence against women? First of all, in addition to just giving hope, it shows that there's not a vaccine against violence. There's not one single solution. We can see that we're going to have the largest impact when we are looking at all these different levels, both you know at the individual level, the community level, national level with programs and laws. And we need to be looking at both women's access to justice, access to comprehensive and compassionate services for healing, And we need to pay attention to prevention, which also has a lot to do with transforming social norms. Most importantly, I think from our work is really highlighting the importance of the women's movement and how crucial it is that we have a strong women's movement in each country and globally that continues to push for these changes. And that's not just our research. Some very important 
comprehensive uh, studies that, that measure over 70 countries found that the single most important factor that predicted whether a country had a good law or policy on domestic violence was not, it wasn't GDP, it wasn't having progressive leftist governments, it wasn't women's education, it was the existence of an autonomous women's movement. It is so interesting to hear just how vital the women's movement is in creating change in this area. Manuel tells us that the role of feminism is also incredibly important when it comes to preventing and responding to violence in humanitarian settings. I participated uh, with some of my colleagues in, in doing research in these settings, and what I found crucial is to strengthen women's groups organizations, women's rights organizations at, at the local level. I think that's key. And including the national women's machineries in the country, also to carry out programs, interventions that promote women's participation in peace building, state building processes, in resolving the crisis, in resolving the uh, natural disaster. In terms of programs, for example, of transforming gender norms, if it's in refugee or displacement camps or it's in, in other settings, I think it's key to try to work with schools. And in terms of response, there are several initiatives and strategies like to better respond to survivors. I think uh, mobile clinics, for example. But what I saw is very important is that uh, organizations, local or international, set a sustainable case management service in all the areas that are accessible to women. And then what I've seen that happen is that these services are there for like two, three years, and then they close. And then basically they leave women alone. And I think these clinics, these, these uh, centers are extremely important for women to empower women, for women to talk about their situations of violence, to create a community among women, to create uh, support. So I think to sustain centers for women in conflict areas is, is key. And building on this, Mary tells us about another fascinating study she was involved in as part of the What Works program, looking at the impact of war and conflict on violence against women and violence against girls in South Sudan. Several researchers in, in our group have been working on, on addressing violence against women in conflict settings for many years, and the What Works program gave us an opportunity to dig deeper on this issue, particularly in a new country, South Sudan, where there hadn't been prevalent studies. You know, they were just beginning to have their policies on, on gender-based violence, and they had just emerged from a very, very prolonged, terrible conflict. So we went there in 2013, and in the midst of this, conflict broke out again. So most of our research, which was meant to be post-conflict, actually ended up taking place in the midst of an acute conflict. But what we were trying to find out was, what are the different forms of violence against women and girls that take place in conflict, and how are they related, and what are some of the impacts of them? And the reason we wanted to do this was that we found that most of the research on violence against women in conflict tend to focus on sexual violence, conflict-related sexual violence. So in other words, rape as a weapon of war, 
raped by armed actors. And they were just sort of had this laser focus on this one form of violence, which is shocking, horrific, has not been recognized often in peace building and in, in understanding of con- conflict as a weapon of war. So we don't mean in any way to diminish that. But it takes place in a context where women are already being abused in other ways. And we wanted to understand all forms of violence and the cumulative impact of violence. So we did a population-based study, a household survey, in three different settings in South Sudan that we knew were experiencing different types of conflict. So it wasn't a national survey. It was really trying to understand violence in, in different contexts of conflict. So one was in Rumbek, which is a very sort of traditional cattle-based economy where there is a lot of inter-ethnic, inter-tribal conflict, a lot of cattle raids. And this has traditionally been the case, but we had heard that it was getting much worse during the, the armed conflict. The next one was Juba, the capital of South Sudan, where there also was a lot of fighting. And the conflict in 2013 had really broken out in Juba and then turned into a national conflict. And then we we did a study in two of the protection of civilian camps. So these are camps that are led by the United Nations. One of them was right outside of Juba. And the bulk of the Nuer population who formerly had lived in Juba had fled Juba under the conflict and were living in these camps. So we wanted to understand what was going on there. And in the findings, we found about across the board one out of three women that we interviewed had experienced non-partner sexual violence. In other words, rape by somebody who was not their partner. This is very high. This is four times the global, at least four times the global average of non-partner sexual violence. And when we dug a little bit deeper, we found that 60% of the rapes had taken place before the age of 18. So it was among young girls and adolescents. 40% of them were multiple rapes. And about 70%, so the large bulk of it, took place in the context of the conflict in displacement or during a cattle raid or during other forms of fighting. So clearly, rape as a weapon of war was very much present and women were were really terrified of leaving the camps or going outside even to collect firewood or, or food for fear of being raped. But we also found that women were experiencing other forms of horrific abuse. The most common one was intimate partner violence. And there we found that in Rumbek and in the others, it was more than two thirds. And in Rumbek, it was three quarters of women had experienced sexual or physical violence by a partner. And most of them had experienced it in the last year. And it was very severe, very frequent. And moreover, women had no way of of leaving relationships. We found just a few other things that were also exacerbated by the conflict, and one of them was child marriage. Because so many families had lost their wealth, and most of the rural families' wealth was in the form of cattle, and it had all been dispersed and lost during the war, they felt that their only way to regain wealth to survive was by marrying their younger children, their girls, because bride price is very is a very common practice in South Sudan and it's usually paid in the form of cattle from the family of the of the man to the bride's family so we found that the economic crisis the conflict and then just deeply patriarchal norms that really felt that women were 
to some degree a, a commodity that could be traded for other commodity that they should be, that they have no autonomy or right to choose who they're going to marry, led to additional child marriage and those girls were much more likely to also be beaten and abused. So it really increased, it really amplified our view of what violence against women and girls in conflict actually means, and that it can't just be reduced to very specifically rape as a weapon of war. So with all this in mind, where should we be investing our money, our energies and time in prevention? One is to make sure all the different countries and settings have uh, data on the levels and data of the factors that have data on the idea of what works and not to leave any any of the countries behind because we know we, there are some countries that are much more advanced than others in this knowledge. So we need to put all them together. So that's one thing. The other is about having more information about how to adapt and how to scale up these models that have good principles and best practices on balancing these women. So the process of like adaptations and learning from these adaptations is extremely important. We also still need to have a better data of the administrative records when women go and report a case of violence. And then uh, definitely having an intersectional approach. Now we've seen how that is very important to take into account all the different social categories that divide us as humanity, but are, have been divided us for, for centuries. So it's important to take that into account when we conduct our research. So, are our guests optimistic about the future? And what do they believe are the important next big areas of investment for prevention programming and research? We've obviously got a very strong foundation. There are different questions we need to ask. One is, how do we take it out of the small-scale study site or district and take it to scale? I think there's an incredibly complex agenda around that. But I think there's also a slightly different question, which is that perhaps we need to start shifting our lens a little bit more to a country level and to start more often thinking about what can be achieved in resource-constrained settings and being mindful of the message that comes from Nicaragua, where these great reductions were not achieved just through programming, and in fact largely weren't achieved through that. And also we have results that looking at femicide in South Africa that have shown really big reductions in intimate femicide over the last 10, 20 years. It's very important to understand that there are a range of different things that really make a difference. And one of which is essentially changing social norms. And related to that is obviously laws within a country which so often need to be changed. The use of the media in the country bolstering the women's movement within the country and having leadership determined to build gender equity, which may not come from ruling parties, but maybe civil society leadership that's very powerful. 
And I think we need to look about at this very carefully and to see whether there is a much lower cost way of actually implementing this that is realistic for so many of the low and middle income countries in the world that do not have the type of resources that are going to be able to really substantially reduce the problem of gender-based violence through very direct programming. I think overall, I think that we are in a wonderful knowledge position at the moment. We know so much more about what we need to do and what we can do in order to prevent violence and support women experiencing violence. And that's a tremendous situation to be in and one that's really taken 30 years of really concerted work across the international community and the globe in order to to enable us to reach the point that we're in. I think we need to acknowledge the fact that we have been quite severely hit by the COVID epidemic and its impact on economies of so many countries in the world. And this will impact on women's experience of violence. And we've yet to really understand what that means and how we can respond as we go forward over the next decade to program to mitigate that. And I think we need to understand that world peace is also foundational for gender-based violence prevention. And as we meet here today doing this podcast at a critical moment for the war in the Ukraine, I think it's very important that we extend our our sympathy to women and, and, and children and men who are in the Ukraine. And we really need to understand how much this sets us back and threatens so much of our work. It's very, very important that we unite the agendas around the prevention of all forms of violence in order to prevent violence against women. I'm definitely optimistic. I think the principles for advancing research and knowledge building in our field, I think, are to support local researchers in developing the research about their own context, about their own settings. I also think that we need to build more channels to make sure that this research ends into something, into an action. It can be a little one, can be a small program, but can also be a big policy. To build this bridge between research and action is key. Although I am overall an optimistic person, and especially seeing what can be achieved continues to feed my optimism, but I do think that we have to always be vigilant and understand that our gains are very fragile. And Nicaragua, for example, was not only hit very hard by COVID as as were many other countries, but shortly after we did the study in 2016, the government became progressively conservative and authoritarian and ended up closing down many of the programs that we had been celebrating, like the women's police stations, and basically eliminated all forms of of civil discourse and freedom of expression and demonstrations and has become very repressive. And and many, many feminist leaders have had to leave the country or are in prison at this moment. So it just reminds me that while we need to believe that change is possible, we also need to be working hard to make sure that we hold governments accountable. We need to continue to understand that the feminist movement is really the foundation for 
any other kind of progressive government policies and laws. And they're the ones during COVID in, in many countries who are keeping services going and continuing to support women. And they're the ones who are still out in the streets, making sure that if governments have made promises, that they keep them, that they enforce the laws, that they fund them. And we need to, to keep that kind of pressure up while celebrating all of the advances and achievements that we have thus far. Thanks to our guests, Rachel Dukes, Mary Ellsberg, and Manuel Contreras-Urbina for joining us on the podcast. I'm Elizabeth Dartnell. And I am Angelica Pino. You have been listening to the Sexual Violence Research Podcast by the SVRI. To find out more about our vision, visit svri.org. To free the world of violence against women and violence against children, we need everyone to hear our message. So please subscribe, like, and review us on Apple Podcasts and share this episode far and wide. Thanks for listening, and we will see you for episode eight, where we will discuss how to turn research findings into meaningful change. This podcast is produced by OG Podcasts. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk.